Give Jesus the glory, would you? Praise him, would you? He's worthy, isn't he? Well, you hear a lot about the Chiefs' kingdom. I just want you to know I'm all in. All right, I don't want to minimize what's happened. 50 years is a long time. And so you've got your red on. I do too. I have worn a special pair of socks. Just so you know, like I am all in, so there's no doubt about it. I've never worn them before. I don't know when I'll ever wear them again. Uh, I'm all in for Chiefs Kingdom, but can we do this together, all right? Because, because I know it's a big distraction, and it's really hard to focus, maybe because it's a big, big game. I just wanna maybe remind you of something. Some of you aren't gonna wanna hear this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Long after Chiefs Kingdom doesn't matter, it doesn't last forever, there is another kingdom that will last forever that really, really does matter. I'm talking about the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen? And the kingdoms of this world rise and fall, kings come and go, but the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will last for eternity when every other kingdom has faded forever into history. And that's why I wrote this book, The Weapons of Our Warfare, because God is calling us to be kingdom contenders, not kingdom pretenders, kingdom warriors. We're here for one reason, to advance the kingdom of our God in the face of opposition, in the face of a different king and a different kingdom. And we learn in Ephesians, chapter 6 that this really is warfare. If you haven't got a copy of your book yet, you can get one on the way out. They're selling them out there, and I just want to remind you something I said last week. It's important that you know this. So I don't get any royalties from this book. I don't get any money from the sale of this book. All that money goes back to our church. I don't get anything. don't want anything because I can't tell you you ought to get this book if I stand to gain something financially. Just telling you. can't do it, but you need to get this book. And the reason why is the truth in it is life-changing. It changed my life. And I know it has the power to change yours. And that's what we're studying now in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, it's very uh, common that an author will dedicate a book to somebody or some people. And if you haven't got your book yet, there's a dedication page in it. And uh, I have dedicated this book to you. And this is the dedication page. It says this, I dedicate this book to the congregation and kingdom warriors at Abundant Life you're a beautiful bride and body of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's my overwhelming honor to be your pastor, and I love you very much. And it is an overwhelming honor to be your pastor, to give our life together, do together what none of us could ever do apart, advancing a kingdom that really will last forever the greatest cause ever, and I'm so thankful that we get to do this together. There are monumental moments in your life. I pray this series might be even monumental in your life as it was in my life. Uh, there's watershed, very pivotal, very monumental moments where uh, God does something significant in your life. One of those moments came for me many years ago. I was in the eighth grade. Remember it like yesterday. Uh, Smith Hill Junior High. Dating ourselves a little bit here. Smith Hill Junior High. I'm in the locker room. Uh, and when you're in middle school, it's kind of a season of anxiety anyway, right? Insecurity, I don't know who I am, my identity, you know, trying to figure out what to do with the hair and, you know, trying to figure out my look, my swag. And, you know, it's just kind of one of those times of life for all middle schoolers. And there's nothing more scary for a middle school boy than the locker room. I'm in the locker room this day. And I look up, it's after gym class, I'm sitting on the bench, kind of putting my tennis shoes on. I look up and in walks the school bully. I'm not making this up, real story. School bully, his name was Jimmy. 
Uh, and I remember Jimmy like it was yesterday. I can't remember his last name. It was something like Garoppolo or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Some of you don't get it. All right, watch the game tonight. You'll get it, all right? School bully. He, his name is Jimmy. And I was actually secretly scared of Jimmy. I had watched him punch other kids. I had watched him fight other kids. I mean, he was tough. Uh, and uh, he was scary looking. I mean, this is a middle schooler with a full beard. He's one of those 13-year-olds that looks like a full-grown man, right? Uh, he's got a full beard. He's got hair on his face. I don't even have hair on my legs yet, okay? And all of a sudden, Jimmy walks in. And sure enough, he, he's walking in with his, his posse. He's got a power and principality with him. One on this side, one on this side. And he walks up to me, I'm sitting down. He's looking down at me now. I'm looking up at him. And he walks over to me, and he gives me this, you know, this really mean posture, this really scary look. He looks at me, you know, and a bully, I mean, he's gotta look bigger than he is. It's one of these things, right? I'm looking up at him, he's looking down at me, and he says this, he says, hey, I heard you've been talking about me behind my back. And in that moment, like what to do? Everything in me wanted to stay sitting down. Because if I stood up, it's dangerous. If I stood up, it was risky. If I stood up, he might punch me. And I've seen him punch other people. So this is a really scary moment. I mean, my heart is racing. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. What to do? And I don't know what happened. I don't remember thinking about it. But all of a sudden, I remember standing up. Now, understand something at the time. I'm six foot three in the eighth grade. Yeah, I'm six six now. I was 6'3 in the eighth grade. I'm a big kid. I don't know how big I am. Here I am, six foot three. I don't really understand how tall I am. I, I, I'm a middle schooler. I'm a really big, strong kid, but I don't know how strong I really am. I'm living in fear and worry of this bully because I don't yet understand who I am. Do you understand that's a picture of a lot of Christians here? Do you understand you're stronger than you think you are? Be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. You don't yet know who you are. This series about discovering who I really am in Christ. But I don't know at the time. And all of a sudden, I'm standing up. And check it out. All of a sudden, he's looking up. And now I'm looking down. And I remember saying these words, all right? Now, I, you know, you got to get the posture how I am. I give him the same look. I'm scary, I'm scary too, just look at me, right? I remember saying these words, I haven't been talking about you, but even if I was, what are you gonna do about it? Right? And guess what Jimmy did, I'm serious. He looked at this friend, he looked at this friend, he rolled his eyes, and he walked away. Yeah. He just walked away. You know why? Because he wasn't expecting me to stand up. He was expecting me to sit down, and sitting down, I wasn't a threat to him. But when I stood up, all of a sudden, he knew he was overmatched. And here's what I learned that day. It's really hard to stand up the first time, but when you stand up once, it gets easier to stand up the next time. All of a sudden, standing up is what you do every time. Do you understand that four times in this one passage, Ephesians 6, 10 through 14, Paul says stand. You see, the theme of this passage is stand, learning how to stand 
stand against that bully, learning how to stand in the face of the enemy because Satan really is a bully. You understand, he understands how strong you really are in Christ, but he doesn't want you to know how strong you really are in Christ. So he wants you to stay sitting down because he knows that you're no threat sitting down. And if you ever learn how to stand, you better believe when you stand up, he's gonna back up. And that's why Paul says these words in Ephesians chapter 10, uh, chapter six and verse 10. He says, finally, all right, now we've studied this, this letter line by line, verse by verse for the last nine months, all right? This is an amazing letter to the Ephesians. And he saves, in essence, the best for last, all right? He saved the most important part, maybe for last. And so he says, at the end of this letter, finally, all right, the last thing I'm gonna say is what you need to remember. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, being able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's the first of four times he tells you to stand. He says, stand against the wiles of the devil. Stand, therefore, in the full armor of God. Stand in the evil day. Having done all to stand, stand. You see, we're going to learn today how to stand. Now, he says, stand in the full armor of God. Listen, we're going against an enemy with supernatural power. You don't fight that kind of enemy in your own power. You must stand in the strength and might of God Almighty. And here's the beautiful thing. He's given you weapons. That means you can win. You have supernatural weaponry that we're going to learn starting next week how to engage in warfare with the supernatural enemy. Now, he says stand against the wiles of the devil. We said last week there's a wily adversary. This means he's scheming against us. Satan always wants to distort reality in your life. It's a distortion of truth. This is how he works. Remember what Jesus said. Satan is the liar and father of lies. When he speaks, he speaks not the truth, for the truth is not in him. So he always attacks with lies. And his most subtle lies are the most dangerous lies. You understand that he wants to distort reality. That's how he wants to overcome us, but you can overcome him. And so when I think of the wiles of the adversary and his desire to distort reality, this is how I might illustrate it today. So today is Super Bowl Sunday, which means millions of people are going to be watching football today that really don't know that much about football, and they don't watch it any other time. So they're not going to really know what's going on here, right? And so that's just kind of a, the nature. When you don't understand something, it's hard to enjoy. It's kind of like me watching hockey. I go to a Mavs game once in a while. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I mean, I sit there for two and a half hours waiting for somebody to throw a punch, because that's the best part of a hockey match, yes? You know, and finally, and the next thing you know, they break it up and it's over, right? I don't understand the plays, I don't understand hockey. It's kind of like soccer. Guys, I respect soccer players, I don't get it, I don't understand it. Sit there for three hours to watch a two to one score in the end. Two to one, three hours. I don't understand it, all right? Football's kind of the same way. Like, Phil, I don't get it. Well, here's what's, let me help you get it, all right? You're going to hear something tonight about a play-action pass. You're going to hear that term, play-action pass. All right, it's a distortion of reality. It's a scheme that you run against the enemy. So a play-action pass is a running, actually, it's a pass play. It's made to look like a running play. 
All right, so play action pass. You'll hear the analyst say, play action pass. The quarterback fakes like it's a running play, and he fakes like he's handing the ball to the running back, and the running back fakes like he's taking the ball and running with it. And so what happens is all the defensive players take the bait, and they tackle the wrong guy, and while the running back is acting like he has the ball, he doesn't have the ball, so all the defenders run toward the line of scrimmage to tackle the wrong guy with the ball, and as the defensive secondary is running this way, the wide receiver's running that way, and all of a sudden the quarterback who still has the ball throws it downfield, and there's the touchdown. It's a play-action pass, right? That's called a distortion of reality. They saw one thing, but it wasn't real. Their eyes lied to them. Now, here's the deal. We think to ourselves watching it from the armchair, why did they do that? They tackled the wrong guy. I'll tell you why they did that. Because in real time, it's happening in nanoseconds. And in the fog of war, it can be, to, be, be hard to discern what's real and what's not real. That's why on the field, it's really hard sometimes for the players to discern who has the ball. And I want you you know, from the press box, from way up there, you can see everything clearly. The play develops differently. And I want you to understand why God has given us his word. I'll tell you why. Because in the fog of war, in real time, it's easy to not see the truth seriously. There's a distortion. What's real? What's not? Do you understand that God gives us his word to give us the press box view? The elevated perspective, that's what Ephesians 6, 10 through 17 is. He wants you to have the elevated perspective so you don't see the distortion of reality and you don't take the bait that Satan is hoping you might take. Now he goes on here, he says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Remember, your real adversary is never the one you can see. We live in the physical, but we do not war in the physical. There's always the enemy behind the scene that is pulling the strings. He says, the, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, he says, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now listen, if you're gonna learn to take a stand, what Paul says is you need to learn the chain of command. All right, you need to know where you stand in that chain of command. Well, let's break this down, understand what's happening, what he's about to teach us. God tells us four times to stand against the devil, but to stand, you need to understand there's a chain of command. Everything that God does, he does in a chain of command. Where there is no authority, there's anarchy. And so God in the angelic realm has arranged the angelic, and yes, even today, the demonic in a chain of command, just like the US military has a chain of command. All right, there's a private, and he has a different rank and less power than the sergeant, and the sergeant has a different rank and less power than the captain, and the captain has a different rank and less power than the major, and the major has a different rank and less power than the lieutenant colonel, and the lieutenant colonel has more rank than the major, but he has less rank than the general, all right? There's a, there's a rank among the angels that we're going to learn, and it's important you understand your rank in this chain of command if you're gonna stand, all right? So let's break this down, he says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Now what's amazing to me about the written revelation of God's word, the Bible, as you begin to study it, you discover every single word is not accidental, every word there is providential. The Bible's meant to be studied, not just read. How do you study it? 
comparing scripture with scripture. And as you do, you connect the dots and what God is teaching begins to emerge. He's given us here the rank of the demonic realm. Compare what he says in Ephesians 6.12 with Colossians 1.16. It says, for by him, that's Jesus. All things are created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Notice, remember last week, I said, we live in a world of two realms, visible and invisible. And the average Christian living in Western civilization doesn't really fathom and can't imagine what God is trying to teach us when we talk about we wrestle not against flesh and blood because remember, we have all been influenced by what amounts to a worldview of naturalism. This is built in Western civilization as a worldview of naturalism, rationalism, so we naturally want to take the supernatural out of the Bible when it tells us about supernatural things. So he tells us that God has created everything, what you can see and what you can't see. Jesus has created the visible and the invisible realm, the realm you can see and the realm you cannot see. There is the material realm and the immaterial realm, the visible realm, the invisible realm, the natural realm, and the supernatural realm, the realm of humans and the realm of angels and demons. And God's created all of it. Now it says, Jesus has created visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Now listen carefully, you see this again, these terms of principalities and powers in Colossians 1.16, but it's here, Paul adds to more dominions of thrones and dominions. What you have here is the descending hierarchy of powers, the chain of command among the angelic and the demonic realm. Now I want you to notice, comparing Ephesians 6.12 and Colossians 1.16, Paul uses thrones and dominions here, but he does not use thrones and dominions in Ephesians uh, uh, 6 and verse 12. He just says principalities and powers. And so the implication is this, and on the angelic hierarchy, angels don't share the same rank. There are descending powers of authority from thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. He uses principalities and powers when speaking of the demonic army, the fallen angels under Satan's command, but when speaking of it holistically and generally, he adds thrones and dominions. Here's the reason why. The implication would be that when Satan came, sowing discord and rebellion among the angels. We know this from Ezekiel chapter 28, the anointed cherub that at one time was meant to bring the worship of God, decided he wanted to be worshiped like God. All of a sudden, he decided he didn't like the second chair, he wanted the first chair, and the one that was meant to direct others to worship God, himself decided, I want to be worshiped as God. Revelation 12 and verse 4 tells us, he leads a third of the angels into rebellion against God. The implication is, the lower ranking angels, principalities and powers, sided with Satan, while the higher ranking angels, thrones and dominions, stayed loyal to God. And that's why he uses thrones and dominions in Colossians 1.16, but he does not in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. So we need to learn who are the principalities and who are the powers, how do we defeat this invisible enemy that Paul says we wrestle against daily. All right, so who are the principalities? Principalities refer to demonic authorities 
assigned to reign over specific kingdoms and countries or regions of the world to advance Satan's kingdom agenda. Remember, this is a clash of kings and kingdoms. It's a battle for a throne. And as a child of God, you're now in the kingdom of God, which means you have now become an enemy of Satan who's trying to advance his kingdom because you, you are, in his mind, part of the opposition. So he wars against us. What happened when Adam sinned, he lost dominion of the earth. Dominion was passed back to Satan. So now Satan assigns demonic principalities to reign over specific kingdoms and countries of this world. When you hear the word principality, think of municipality, all right? So I showed you a picture of me last week in my police uniform, like the last day I was ever, I think, a cop, and I just wanted to capture that moment. And uh, my wife took a picture of me, right? And I told, showed you some of the gear, I had my weapon, I had my bulletproof vest, I had my riot gear in the trunk, but I told you the number one most important thing they gave me was the badge. None of the rest of the stuff mattered without that badge. That badge represented what? Delegated authority. But that delegated authority came only within the municipality of Kansas City, Missouri. When you hear the word principality, think something similar to municipality, meaning I had power other people didn't have as long as I was in with a specific piece of real estate known as Kansas City, Missouri. But when I left that municipality, no longer in the city limits of Kansas City, Missouri, that badge didn't mean a thing. I had no delegated authority in Belton, Missouri. I didn't have delegated authority in Lee Summit, Missouri, only in Kansas City, Missouri. And there's few times, and I worked uh, an area right next to State Line, Kansas City, Kansas. And I hit my lights and shined my light and tried to pull somebody over, and they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew if I go west, I'll hit the State Line, and he won't be able to chase me. And that happened over and over again, all right? Uh, I hit my lights and start following them, trying to pull them over, and they are waving in the rearview mirror. <laughs> Usually not with five fingers. Because they knew he has no power in Kansas City, Kansas. His power's in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, and, uh, you know, it'd be so irritating because I knew I can't follow him there. One time I confessed this. I have never confessed this until today, but I've been gone now 20 years from the PD, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I admit, I chased him in Kansas City, Kansas more than once. I can't believe I just said that. But two or three times I remember chasing him because, you know, I mean, there's a reason I was chasing him to begin with. And here's the deal. I realized, though, wait a minute, what if I catch him? Then what? I have no authority here. So I, you know, you know turned around, head back to where I have authority, head back to Kansas City, Missouri. Here, here's the point. I had no authority there. I'm just like anybody. I, I can't, I have no powers there. Do you understand that is the implication in the demonic, in the angelic principality represents a specific piece of real estate? where there's delegated authority. Uh, we can see this in scripture. Daniel chapter 10 is a passage we're gonna mine out later on in this series. Daniel is the prophet of God at the time the Persian Empire historically has emerged into the world superpower at this time in history. And he's praying, Daniel is praying. He's praying for 21 days. And we learn in Daniel chapter 10 that after 21 days, a messenger angel dispatched by God finally comes to Daniel. And guess what he says to Daniel? 
Daniel, from the moment you started praying 21 days ago, I was on the way. But he tells Daniel, somewhere between there and here, he was accosted and held hostage by the prince of Persia. And do you understand the implication was there was a demonic prince who reigned over the kingdom of Persia that was pulling the strings behind the scenes of this earthly prince. And then he says, Daniel, when I go back to heaven, check this out, I'm going to have to fight with the prince of Greece. And Greece would not become an empire for another 200 years, but the implication is that even before Alexander the Great, the earthly prince was even born, Satan was preparing a demonic prince to pull the strings specifically of that earthly kingdom to advance a satanic kingdom agenda. He tells us that he's able to go. And you know why he's able to now respond to Daniel's prayer? Because he tells him in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, that Michael the archangel finally came and overcame this prince of Persia. We learn in scripture, Michael the archangel is the most powerful and high-ranking member of the angelic host. And check this out. Daniel 12 and verse 1 calls Michael the archangel the prince who stands guard over Israel. And I want you to see, both God has an angel army, Satan has an angel army, and he has been assigning them, the angelic host, to stand guard over nations, and Satan has been assigning his angel to stand guard over nations, because ultimately, it's a battle for control of the kingdoms of this world. Have you ever thought to yourself watching the news, for example, the guy in North Korea? What's his name? Kim Jong, Kim Jong crazy, okay? I mean, honestly, you think to yourself, this guy is loony. This guy is, I mean, he's just crazy. He's out there. I mean, if he ever did get a nuke, there's a reason we don't want him to get nukes. Because uh, he's crazy enough to use one, right? Now, here's the deal. This is what I want you to see. He, he's not just crazy. There is a demonic principality over North Korea and that kingdom, that country, that's pulling the strings behind the scenes, beginning looking at life through your spiritual eyes, not just your physical eyes. Have you ever wondered why Iran hates the West? Do you know that today what we call Iran is the ancient country of Persia? And could it be that the very same demonic prince at the time of Daniel, the prince of Persia, Persia is the same demonic principality that stands over that region of the world today. Could it be that is why those government authorities of Iran hates Israel and hates the West because Satan knows it's from the West that the name of Jesus has gone to every crevice and corner of our world. You see, there's more than meets the eye. There's always more than meets the eye. Have you been paying attention to the news and have you noticed the chaos and confusion in Washington, D.C.? I mean, really, what a train wreck. I mean, chaos. Now listen, 1 Corinthians 14 says God is not the author of confusion. So wherever there is confusion, who's the author of it? You look even within our own government, just the complete chaos and confusion, I would suggest there is a principality over Washington, D.C. that's sowing Satan's agenda in his kingdom personally, seriously. Now, here's where it gets personal. You have principalities that reign over countries and over regions of the world. But then you have powers. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. What are powers? Powers probably refer to 
lower-ranking demons assigned to cities, communities, churches, and even individuals to advance Satan's kingdom agenda. Did you know that Satan not only assigns demons to countries, he assigns demons to cities, communities, neighborhoods, families, churches, and yes, even individuals personally. There's a reason why at times you feel so much opposition because Satan is threatened. Do you understand that Satan knows you're a threat to his kingdom? He wants you to stay sitting down because if you ever learn to stand up and stand against him, he's going to have to back up. Do you understand that there are angels warring for you and there are angels warring against you in even our own church? I guarantee we have Satan's attention. Our name is known in heaven and our name is also known in hell. You ought to have a goal as a kingdom warrior, a kingdom contender, as a true follower of Jesus to be such a threat to the enemy that yes, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Your name is known in heaven, but you ought to be such a threat to the enemy that your name is also known in hell and that is why sometimes it seems so hard and we have such an anemic shallow Christianity in American society honestly you hear these cliches well you know if God is in it I mean we'll know God is in it because the doors are just gonna fly open I mean if God is in it it ought to be easy and I'm trying to tell you sometimes the sign that God is in something is it is stinking hard because there's opposition and it's real You look at the life of the Apostle Paul. I mean, here's the Apostle Paul that wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit half the New Testament, the greatest missionary the church has ever known, the man that was probably more responsible for taking the gospel to every crevice and corner of the Roman Empire. He was beaten five times by the Jews. He was imprisoned too. He was stoned to death. Here is a man that was shipwrecked and eventually martyred by Nero. Do you understand? A lot of us would have looked at Paul and said, Paul, are you sure you're supposed to be a missionary? Paul, it doesn't look like God's hand is on your life anymore. I mean, really, Paul, if God wanted you to do this, why is it so hard? I want you to understand that ultimately, sometimes the sign that you're right in the middle of God's will is all of a sudden there is opposition, and it's really, really hard. I want you to know that there are angels warring against you, but the good news is there are angels warring for you, and that is why we don't have to live with a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Listen, I don't fear death. I don't fear Failure, I fear mediocrity, I fear apathy, I fear complacency, but we don't have to live in worry. Sometimes people ask, Pastor Phil, do you get stressed? Are you serious? Yeah, too blessed to be stressed, stop it. (laughs) Another cliche, just not true. I am blessed and stressed almost all of my life, all right? I'm trying to tell you, listen, watch this. When I realize that I am seizing up with anxiety, about a situation, I'm full of worry over things I can't control, Uh, you know, I'm stressed, all of a sudden, here's what happens, I have forgotten my identity. I worry because I've forgotten my identity, my kingdom authority. That is the source of worry. All of a sudden, you realize, wait a minute, I don't need to worry. Everything that happens to me has to pass through the sovereign hands of God Almighty. Satan doesn't get to do whatever he wants to you. You are not at his mercy. Do you understand? I don't know if you realize this or not. 
I don't fear death. I don't fear anything could happen to me because I got bodyguards. You can't see them, but I do. And as a child of God, you do too. You had angels warring for you. We have angels warring for our church. We have angels uh, warring against our church. But I want you to see ultimately that God has given you authority and supernatural weaponry to stand against the enemy so that you can live victoriously. You don't have to live defeatedly. You can live dynamically. You can live supernaturally. And that's what we're learning today, learning to stand in the power of God Almighty. This is real. Listen, a lot of us don't take this seriously, even though we read it in the New Testament. There's certain words you see over and over again. Daemon, daemonion. Translated in the English as demon. You see this dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament. Now there's another word you see in the New Testament. This isn't allegory. This isn't literary symbolism. The verb form of daemonion is daemonizo, from which we get the word demonize. Twelve times you see this word dominiso, which means to demonize, or somebody is subjected to a demon. To be demonized or have a demon can refer to demonic possession, oppression, manipulation, or affliction. You see this word twelve times in the New Testament. Do you think maybe God wants us to take this seriously? And here's the reason, as American Christians, once again influenced by the worldview of naturalism of Western civilization, we think this is just in the movies. See, we've learned not to take this seriously, the idea of demonic possession, because we've all been influenced by pop culture, but it's real. The reason we don't think it's real is because, you know, we've, uh, we've been influenced by pop culture and, and the worldview of naturalism of Western civilization, and, you know, we've seen the movies, and so we don't take it seriously. It's just Hollywood stuff. Uh, back when, you know, I was a teenager, which was in the dark ages before cable gave us 140 channels anytime we want, back when we had three channels, four on a clear day, all right? Uh, Friday night, there was something called Friday Fright Night. Everybody over 40 remembers Friday Fright Night. Those under 40 don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Friday Fright Night was, I think, on Channel 41. I can't remember for sure, all right? But, but it was three scary movies in a row, Friday Fright Night. And as the night went on, the movies got scarier and scarier and scarier, right? And so, you know, Freddy Krueger and Nightmare on Elm Street and blah, you know, that's, a, you know, that's our, our mind's eye. What, you know, demonic possession is, the exorcist. You know, somebody's got their head spinning 360 on their shoulders and, you know, puking green vomit, right? And nobody here's ever seen anything like that. It must not be real. No, wait a minute. Remember, Satan distorts reality. I have personally witnessed demonic possession with my own eyeballs. First on the PD, now as a pastor, I know exactly what I'm talking about because I've witnessed it personally. PCP at one time was a drug of choice on the streets. It's making a comeback. Somebody on PCP had supernatural strength. It would take five, six, seven guys to subdue one man, a normal-sized guy. How can PCP, how can a drug give somebody supernatural strength? It can't. But drugs opens ones up to the demonic. 
The Greek word is pharmakia, from which we get the word pharmacy. It is translated over and over in the New Testament as sorcery. Connect the dots with me. I've heard more than one person trying to get clean, trying to overcome drug addiction. I've heard more than one person, independent of each other, say, Pastor Phil, I'm having such a hard time. I'm two weeks clean. I'm two months clean, but the drugs keep calling my name. Over and over again, I've heard this. How can drugs call your name? The answer is they can't. But demons know your name. Demons call your name. Drugs and demons go hand in hand. Start understanding, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Yes, you have a physical addiction, but that is not your only problem. It's more than a physical addiction, it is demonic. You have opened yourself up to a demonic stronghold and it's more than physical. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Somebody says, I wanna get off this merry-go-round of sensuality and immorality and pornography. I wanna live with integrity. I wanna live holy as a child of God. But over and over again, I fail over and over again. Do you know why? Because you're dealing with more than just the lust of the flesh, the sin of the flesh. You see, immorality and pornography specifically is about self-idolatry, and idolatry is always the work of demons. It's about counterfeiting reality. And that's why no matter how hard you try, self-determination, a New Year's resolution, that, that, that is not going to overcome. That is using a natural weapon against a supernatural enemy. Once you understand, there really is mental illness. Understand, hear me well now. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say, because somebody's going to misquote me, misunderstand if you, if you tune out now. There really is clinical depression. Our bodies are made up of chemicals, which means if you've been prescribed medication, keep taking your medication, because there really is clinical conditions that lead to mental illness. But I know this, you look at 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse nine, tells us King Saul had a distressing spirit. If King Saul were alive today, he would probably be diagnosed with clinical depression, maybe bipolar. But his issue wasn't a mental issue at all. His issue was not a clinical issue at all. His issue was demonic. And that's why so much of the time, secular psychology recognizes the psychological factors, but remember, we never just wrestle against the physical. It's always also, in some components, spiritual. And that's why so much of the time, we don't get to the source of the problem. We deal with the symptoms, but we don't get to the source. That's why we need to take this seriously. Is possession, demonic possession, just a thing in movies? Is it just Hollywood? I, I can tell you about Steve Brown, our campus pastor in Blue Springs. Everybody give a shout out to Steve Brown. I love this guy in Blue Springs, <laughs> leading our, our movement in Blue Springs. Spent years of his life off and on on the mission field in Africa, tribal areas of Africa. And we were talking about this very thing this week, demonic possession. He said that at one time, they were doing an evangelistic outside opener crusade, watched a man slither up a pole like a snake without using his hands or his feet. Just like this, all of a sudden, begins to levitate up a pole, slithering up a pole like a snake. Could I suggest to you, there really was a serpent controlling him at that moment. Demonic possession. Now listen, once again, in the West, that's not how Satan works, not usually. 
in tribal areas. He comes as a roaring lion seeking to control through fear and intimidation. But in our world, sophistication, education, you know, we're not a people of superstition. He'd much rather come, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us, transforming himself as an angel of light. What does that mean? He loves to blend in. He camouflages himself. He wants to come unnoticed and unannounced. I guarantee you have met somebody demonically possessed, but you didn't know it because it did not look the way you thought it should. Highly functioning, educated, but somebody who hates Jesus. It's a spirit of antichrist. There are people, guys, in my life, I've never met them, never talked to them, but they don't like Pastor Phil. I know, hard to believe. <laughs> I might even say they hate Pastor Phil. What have I done to them? Nothing, absolutely nothing. But it's not that they hate me, they hate what's in me. They hate who is in me. You know why? Because there is a different spirit in them than the one that's in me. I will put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed, Genesis 3.15. I have been born of the woman's seed, the seed of Jesus Christ, the seed of Genesis 3.15. And there's enmity, there's hostility between Satan's seed. They got a different seed than the seed that lives in me. And all of a sudden, you can, why, why doesn't this person like me? Now listen, sometimes Christians, we think we're getting persecuted for Jesus and our stance for Jesus. Listen, sometimes we're not getting persecuted for Jesus, we get persecuted because we're a jerk. <laughs> All right, so make sure if you're getting persecuted, you're getting persecuted for Jesus and not because you're just being a jerk. <laughs> but sometimes, honestly, there are people in your life, they just don't like you and you can't figure out why they don't like me. Could it be that maybe it's the spirit in them that's at war with the spirit in you? See, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, for most of us here, listen, as a child of God, you have been indwelt by the Spirit of God. What that means is you cannot be possessed by an unclean spirit or a demonic spirit because you're now possessed by God's Spirit. All right, the moment you receive by faith God's Son, Romans 8 9 says, you received God's Spirit. And the Holy Spirit won't share space with a demonic spirit. But I'm going to tell you, demonization, it's not just demonic possession. It can be demonic oppression. It can be demonic manipulation. It can be demonic affliction, which means in some way, every single one of us at some time in our life have been demonized. For some of us, we're demonized right now. You're under the control of a demonic spirit. Currently, you're being manipulated by a demonic spirit. And in some capacity, every single one of us have been afflicted by a demonic spirit. By definition, the apostle Paul was demonized. You remember, it says in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, that lest I be exalted above measure, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. God said, Paul, I want you to stay humble, so I'm going to allow this demon to afflict you. But I promise it's for your good. Do you understand that there are times Satan becomes God's tool for your sanctification? Do you understand there are times that he will allow you to go through a satanic affliction, not because he hates you, but because God loves you. And there's always two agendas, and what Satan means to use for evil, God means for good. Never forget that Satan tempts, but God tests. And the very thing God is using to test your faith is the very thing that God is using to tempt your faith, and the very thing that God wants to use to fortify your faith is the very thing Satan wants to use to destroy your faith. 
There's always two agendas in your life. And I want to teach you how to stand. To stand in the face of that affliction, to stand in the face of that temptation, to stand in the face of that tribulation. Listen carefully, Revelation 12, 11 tells us how to take our stand. He says, and they overcame him, that's Satan. See, Satan's trying to overcome you, but the good news is that you can overcome him. He says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. This week, when you feel that affliction, when you feel that manipulation, when you're standing in the face of temptation and you're about to cave in again and everything in you wants to back up, this is how you stand up. And I will promise when you stand up, it's the demons that have to back up. All right, there's three things, watch this. Your spiritual position. This is by the blood of the lamb. In other words, you stand on the blood of the lamb. You have a new position now as a child of God. Before you were in sin, and that made you automatically in Satan's prison, but now when you put your faith in him, you're in him, no longer in sin. You've got a brand new position. 34 times we've seen this phrase in our study of Ephesians, in him or in Christ. See, that is your position. You're not in sin, you're now in him. And we study this months back, Ephesians 2 and verse six. Look at where you are now that you're in him. It says, God has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, 2,000 years ago, you were in Christ, and because you were in him, you died with him, and because you died with him, you rose with him, and because you rose with him, you're now seated with him in heavenly places. Hebrews 12 and verse two tells us that Jesus is now seated on the right hand of the Father. In the ancient days, the right hand was the hand of power, the hand of authority. I want you to understand, in him you are seated in a place of power and authority. Do you understand the implication? Satan cannot make you do a thing. The devil did not make you do it. Do you understand? You do not have to obey sin and Satan. He's got to obey obey you because you're seated in heavenly places that's your position that is your true identity as a child of God as a kingdom warrior your identity is not captivity your identity is not infidelity immorality pornography your identity is not depression your identity is not that addiction do you understand you have a new identity because you got a new daddy you got a new father new family new king new kingdom This is your true position. You stand on the finished work of the Lamb. And you see, he's overcome our enemy. I want you to notice, Colossians 2.15, when he rose from the dead, he disarmed principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Now notice, he doesn't say anything about thrones and dominions. You know why? Because he hadn't disarmed thrones and dominions. Those are the good guys. He disarmed principalities and powers. He has disarmed your enemy. Jimmy knows that he is overmatched if you ever learn to stand up. Because when you stand up, Jimmy's going back up. Now, he doesn't want you to know what he knows. He wants to distort reality so you're still sitting in that prison, a prisoner of war, 
no threat to the enemy. You have authority now, delegated authority upon your life because you are in Christ. Look at what it says, in Christ, we're no longer under Satan's authority. He is under ours, Luke 10, 19. Jesus said, behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. You can stand now in the face of the adversary. You don't have to back up, you don't have to retreat. You can stand up and what that means is you can start to speak up. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Understand, it begins with understanding your new position and then you appropriate it through your mouth's confession, the word of their testimony. In the same way, you appropriated God's promise of forgiveness of sin, what we call salvation, you appropriate every other promise therein through your verbal confession. It says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Start to understand that you have the power to speak God's word and God's promises into your every situation, your every trial, your every tribulation that is the word of your testimony. It is your verbal declaration. It is your verbal confession. Now listen carefully. This does not mean, as some teach, you can just speak things into existence. This isn't the word of faith teaching. Word of faith teachers teach, you can speak whatever you want into existence. How silly. Only God can speak things into existence and you ain't him. So you can't claim what God is not first named, but once God names it, now you can claim it. That's how you start taking possession of it. When you feel weak, when you feel worried, when you feel insecure, when you feel like I'm gonna cave in again to the same old temptation, you start to proclaim God's word. And when you start to proclaim God's word, your voice becomes a weapon. When you say God's word, your voice becomes the Word of God. And what that means is that prayer, praise, and proclamation are how you appropriate practically the victory you have already positionally. I go through the same routine every Sunday morning, not unlike I do on Monday morning. Understand, I'm out there singing, and I'm praising, and I'm worshiping with you. Understand, I'm not just going through the motions. I'll tell you why. Because worship is what prepares you for war, and in your worship, it is the war. I'm out there praising, and I'm worshiping. Can I tell you why? Because when I start preaching, I enter into a combat mentality. You may not know this. I'm just letting you inside, kind of behind the scenes. What I know is when I get on this platform, Two worlds are colliding, the visible, the invisible, the natural, the supernatural. And what I know when I'm preaching is there are two spirits at work in you and in this place too. There is the spirit of truth, God's spirit that wants to prevail in your life, but there's also deceiving spirits that wants to distort the truth and distort reality. And I'm preparing for warfare spiritually. And I have learned that you prepare for war in your worship. Listen. When you begin to worship, demonic principalities and powers begin backing up because that's how you start standing up. Every single day, when I'm driving this way, I have a 22-mile commute to the office. Guess what? I'm not just checked out. I'm not just listening to 980 KMBC. Give me the bad news for the day. No, I'm making verbal declarations the whole way. I'm making verbal confessions, verbal proclamations. I'm preparing for war that day. 
I'm a child of God. I've been ransomed and redeemed. I've been bought by the blood of the Son of God. He is the resurrected Lamb of God. Satan, you have no authority over me. I pray against every power and principality. I pray, Jesus, you would turn away the weaponry and every strategy of the enemy because I know who I am. I know my identity. I will not walk today defeatedly. I will live victoriously. Today, I claim victory. In Jesus' name, I'm gonna stand on the Lamb. On the blood of the lamb, I'm victorious no matter what I see because this is what God has said. Now listen carefully, I have to tell you this. It does not matter about your verbal confession if your heart is not in submission. You can quote the Bible over and over again. You can memorize it and say it over and over again as if it's some magic potion, it's not. Satan can quote more scripture in the next nanosecond than you can quote in the next year. Okay? Begins with understanding your position as a child of God. I know who I am. I know I have authority. I know I have authority in the spiritual realm, the unseen realm, and when I walk into a room, the demons are backing up. I know I have authority in my home. I have authority over my family. I have authority in my marriage. Satan, you will not have dominion of any place I step my foot today. You will not have dominion in my family. You don't have dominion over my children. You don't have dominion over my bride. You don't have dominion in my marriage. You don't get dominion in this blood-bought bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't get dominion in this little cubicle where I go to work. This is God's ground. I am not backing up. Satan, you're back up I'm gonna tell you listen if you're not living obediently you are in covenant with the enemy see when you sin you lose your position you make war with him and when you make war with God you side with Satan. Do you understand the implication here? The moment as a child of God, you're not surrendered and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the moment you choose to sin, instead of be obedient to him, you give place to the devil once again. You give back dominion. And that's where a lot of us find ourselves today. We have given back ground that Jesus had taken at Calvary and it's now stolen territory. Today is the day to start taking it back, whether it's your marriage, your finances, your family. Today is the day to start taking it back. Watch this. The way you advance on the enemy is the same way you stand against the enemy. You stand on the blood of the Lamb. You make your verbal confession and you put your life in a place of complete submission. They love not their life even unto death. You know what that means? These tribulation saints will overcome their enemy by letting go of their life, laying it down. And do you understand that as long as you're hanging on to your life, Satan's hanging on to. Whatever you're hanging on to, whatever sin, Satan's hanging on to. But as you let go of your life, Satan has to let go too because somebody else is now hanging on to you. His name is Jesus. The key to getting Satan to let go is you let go. When you let go, 
he set you free. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. You want Satan to retreat? You want to learn to resist? Here it is. It's so simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. James 4, 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, your key is in your position, it's in your verbal confession, but it's a heart in complete submission. You have to decide, Jesus has a right to rule my life, and his rule in my life is always right. Satan, you have no rights. Jesus has all rights. And as you give Jesus all rights, Satan loses all rights, and you start to live victoriously, where before you were living inconsistently. And I want you to do this with me over in Blue Springs. Please join us here. I want you to stand right here, right now. We're gonna take a stand. We're gonna learn to take a stand, and we're literally gonna stand this week when you begin to walk in anxiety and worry. I want you to stand on the blood of the Lamb this week when you start to live with guilt instead of grace and the accused comes once again and says you're not worthy and you should live in shame. I want you to stand once again on the blood of the Lamb this week when you're about to cave in to temptation or you're facing with tears that trial, that tribulation. I want you to stand on your true position. I want you to use your voice as a verbal declaration and I want you to live with complete submission. This is how you start to take a stand as a child of God, a blood-bought son of the living God, a blood-bought daughter of the King. I can live victoriously no matter what I see because I am born of the Genesis 3.15 seed. I've got Jesus, the Son of God, living within me. That means, Satan, you're going to back up today because I'm going to stand up. This is God's ground, and I'm not giving it back. Now listen, the way you take a stand, listen, the way you stand up is always by bowing down. And so right now, over in Blue Springs, I want you to do this with us. If you can physically bow down, get on your knees, then let's do that together. I'm gonna lead you in a warfare prayer. If you can't physically get on your knees, that's okay. God knows the posture of your heart. But we're gonna exercise our kingdom authority right now that we have in Jesus Christ. I want you to pray this with me, repeat this with me out loud, a verbal declaration. Pray, Jesus, I confess that you are the resurrected Son of God, that you have disarmed every power and principality that would war against me. You have already defeated my every adversary. I confess that I'm a blood-bought child of God. I've been ransomed, I've been redeemed. And that today I can live victoriously against all the power of the enemy. Satan, you have no rights to my life. Jesus has all rights to my life. You have no dominion. Jesus has set me free from that prison. So you're gonna back up today because I'm standing up today. And wherever I walk and wherever I go, every demonic power and principality is gonna be in retreat. Jesus, you have all power and authority.
over my life today. In Jesus' name I pray. Would you give him the glory today? Praise him with me, would you? He's worthy. The resurrected Lamb of God. Guys, I love you a whole bunch. I really, really do. I hope you have a super blessed day, a blessed week. I know we're all going to say go cheese, but I'm going to end the day this way. Go Jesus! God go with you. God bless you.